Now, there are, there are at least two ways uh, in which this sermon is going to be a little like a James Bond film. I can't promise you any more than two ways, uh, but there are at least two of them. The second of them I'll, I'll come to a little later, just, just as we're finishing, in fact. But the first way in which this uh, sermon is going to be a little like a James Bond film is that it's going to have a pre-title sequence. Uh, you know the sort of thing I mean, a mini-action story before the main story begins, uh, where Bond is pushed out of an aeroplane uh, or skis over, off cliff, something like that. Uh, well, tonight we're going to have something like that too, perhaps a little less dramatic than that. But anyway, two backstories that are going to help us to understand the relevance of our main story much more deeply. Now, I've, uh, I've got the uh, passages here printed out on, your, um, on the outline, so uh, you don't necessarily need to turn there. But the first scene is from chapter 11 of the Gospel. The scene's a special emergency meeting of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. I don't suppose it looked much like the, uh, the spectre meetings in the, in the Bond films, all concrete and glass. I don't suppose the, the high priest was hidden, half hidden behind a, a bulletproof screen, stroking a cat or anything like that. We have to kind of imagine a first century version of that. However, the dialogue is surprisingly familiar and similar. This council are discussing a new threat to their operation, a man called Jesus who's attracting a lot of attention with his miracles and he might put highly sensitive Jewish-Roman relations at risk. Uh, The dialogue continues like this from verse 49 of chapter 11. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You don't realise that it's better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. Now we can guess that what Caiaphas had in mind at this point was a, was, was a, a political assassination perhaps or, or at least some plot that might result in the execution of this troublesome character. In other words, for him and for the rest of the council, Jesus is an irritation. He's a threat to the comfortable status quo. And although I've set up this scene to, to look melodramatic and although within that we might see Caiaphas, see Caiaphas as the villain, the villain of the piece, I do want us to see something of ourselves in him as we begin this evening. There may not be many of us here this evening who would admit to, to wanting to get rid of Jesus quite so explicitly as he did. Nevertheless, I suspect that there's a, a part in all of us, a little committee locked away in some dark corner of our minds plotting how to reduce the impact of this troublesome man on our comfortable lives. But what we need to learn again this evening, it's not so easy pushing Jesus aside. We can plot and scheme all we like, but Jesus will get what he wants anyway. John, the writer of the Gospel, comments that Caiaphas spoke more truthfully than he knew. He goes on to say this, he did not say this on his own. But as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So then, remember Caiaphas and his plot to get rid of Jesus, and remember the prophecy that he gave, that one man will die for the people. And let's cut to scene two. Scene 2 is from chapter 13 of the Gospel. And this is a very different scene. At first glance, it looks a much uh, 
cosier scene, a much more homely scene. Here we have the troublemaker disgust at the Sanhedrin. Jesus, he's with his disciples. They're enjoying a meal together in an upper room. But we'd have to say that Jesus and his friends are not enjoying jokes and frivolity. In fact, the atmosphere is tense and confused. Jesus has just predicted that one of the disciples will betray him to death. An event that did indeed come true and uh, we were looking at last week. And as Judas, his betrayer, disappeared into the night, Jesus told the other disciples that he would be with them only a little longer. The dialogue continues like this from verse 36 of chapter 13. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, Where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. Now I think it's um, fairly easy in this scene to, to be laughing at Peter and his bravado. You know, he's full of it, isn't he? I will lay down my life for you. Uh, we like him, don't we? We like Peter. He's the colourful rogue. He's nice but dim. Um, he's uh, got his heart, so we think, in the right place, even if, it, if his foot is firmly in his mouth. But even before we get to the main story this evening, I want us to see that we cannot laugh at Peter from a distance. We're just too much like him. Indeed, some of us may even have a similar kind of bravado, a similar desire to see ourselves as equal partners with Jesus in the task of salvation and giving life. You know, we want to be with him there in the credits. Uh, Peter seems to want to be able to say, this salvation is brought to you by Jesus and Peter, his faithful brother. And uh, we might well want to mention too. But even the less overtly self-confident among us will probably, if we're honest, want some degree of approval and recognition for our part in things. Okay then, so here are some more things to remember for later. Remember Peter. Remember Peter and his bravado. And remember Jesus' prophecy this time. Where Jesus is going, his disciples cannot follow. No matter what they say, not even Peter. I tell you the truth, says Jesus, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. Now, if this were a Bond film, this is where the slightly surreal title sequence would begin. Watching on team, this is the TV. This is the moment you might go and put the kettle on to make a cup of tea. Or indeed, you might switch off altogether, given that the best bit has probably already happened. Thankfully, this isn't a Bond film, and the best is yet to come. However, with that pre-title sequence over, I do now have an opportunity to explain what we're up to this evening. See, what we're doing in the run-up to Easter is reading John's account of the run-up to the death and resurrection of Jesus and if that story is over-familiar to us, uh, we're trying to reread it with fresh eyes. But whether this is familiar to us or completely new to us, our method is the same. We're not trying to do anything fancy or complicated. We're just trying to read carefully, paying attention to the details that John has chosen to include and all the time trying to ask the obvious questions as we go along. 
So where are we heading tonight? What, I'm hoping, what am I hoping we're going to see from this passage? Well, I hope we're going to be able to see that John wants us to understand this before the events of Jesus' death and resurrection, that Jesus is going to the cross as one man dying alone for the lives of his helpless people. And John's purpose is that we believe it, as we were saying last week. Believe it, so that we can be one of those people enjoying life in his name. But believe it humbly. Jesus is dying for people who are helpless and have come to know it. Perhaps I should have emphasized that more on the handout. I should have underlined the word humble there, uh, put it in capitals, bold type, italics, I could have, if I could have had a, a flashing red neon sign handed out with the service sheets with that one word, humble, flashing on it, uh, that would have been very good, if slightly ironic. I think uh, we shall see this evening that this is one of the key effects John wants to have on us this evening. Humility. Uh, now that Jesus is going to the cross to die for the lives of his people, builds on, of course, on what we were looking at Last week, from the passage just before this one, uh, in the first 11 verses of chapter 18, we saw the clash in the garden between humanity and its God. We saw Jesus preparing to take on both the hostility of mankind towards God and the just judgment of that hostility for the sake of those he's been given. And we saw Jesus restraining himself from acting in judgment against his enemies. And as he did so, he was restraining his disciples, restraining Peter, who had lashed out in anger with his sword at the high priest's servant. Jesus commanded Peter, this is verse 11, Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? But an obvious question that then raises is, having restrained Peter, is Jesus then expecting him to join him in drinking this cup? Well, in our passage tonight, I think we'll see that the answer to that question is a very clear, unequivocal, resounding no. But John just doesn't just want to say that. He wants to drive it home as hard as he possibly can, just in case we haven't got it yet. And the way he's going to do that is through t- telling two interwoven stories. And I hope you can see for yourselves that this is the key literary feature of this passage We begin with what happened to Jesus. That's in verses 12 through to 14. Then we cut through to what happened to Simon Peter, verses 15 through to 18. Then back to Jesus again, verses 19 to 24. And then finally back to Simon Peter, verses 25 through to 27. Now all of the the gospel writers do this kind of thing, uh, cutting from one scene to another like this. But why do they do it? Well, I guess one obvious answer is that it increases the the pace and tension as we're reading the story. I think we're probably quite familiar with this idea. Modern thriller writers and modern films do this all the time. So we have two storylines, for example, and we alternate between them. We leave one one of those storylines not quite knowing what's going to happen next, on a bit of a cliffhanger, perhaps. And then we engage more with the second stream, in part because we're eager to get back back to it and to find out what's, what's happened. But the other more substantial reason is that it allows John to make a contrast. And in this case, he's making a contrast between Jesus, on the one hand, and Peter, on the other. Let's see if we can highlight that. First then, this is Jesus' story in two parts. 
Jesus' story, one man alone. So we pick up the story in verse 12, a detachment of Roman soldiers and its commander and some Jewish officials binding Jesus, arresting him, bringing him first to Annas. And it's at this point that John reminds us about Caiaphas. Caiaphas, he reminds us, in case we'd forgotten, was the one who advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. And we should, of course, think at this point, aha, John is using that that, that background story uh, of Caiaphas that we looked at earlier. He's using that to interpret Jesus' coming death for us. Jesus is going to die as one man in exchange for the lives of his people. But don't miss the irony here. See, Caiaphas said these things, the words came out of his mouth, but as things stand, he's not going to benefit from them. He's not going to benefit from Jesus' death. And that should stand as a warning to us. Indeed, the warning's driven home if we skip ahead to the the second part of the story, uh, which starts in verse 19. Now, we mustn't get confused here. The high priest mentioned in verse 19, uh, questioning Jesus, is almost certainly Annas, not Caiaphas. Uh, When you look into it, Annas seems to have been a kind of high priest emeritus. Uh, Indeed, perhaps he should have been the high priest, given that the post was supposed to be for life. Uh, According to the Jewish historian Josephus, he was deposed by a previous Roman governor, and Caiaphas was one of a number appointed by the Romans in his place. So we've got this kind of double high priesthood thing going on. Once again, I guess we see the the close but dysfunctional relationship between the Romans and the Jewish establishment. And Annas, like Caiaphas, seems to be worried about the political impact of Jesus and his followers on that relationship. So, verse 19, he questions Jesus about his disciples, uh, perhaps about how many there were, uh, whether they were armed, like Peter was. And he questions Jesus about his teaching, perhaps about whether it was dangerous or seditious. Now, you might think at first that Jesus' answer that we see in these verses is surprisingly curt and unhelpful. The temple guard present clearly thought so, hence the, the slap on the face. But I think Jesus understands Annas, and he wants to expose him. This is what Jesus says, I have spoken openly to the world. In other words, he's exposing the fact that Annas considers himself too important to listen to what everyone else is listening to. He doesn't even bother to call witnesses, as would happen in any reasonable trial. Jesus is only important in as much as he might affect Annas' agenda. That's the kind of attitude that Jesus is exposing. Now, at the time he was writing, John probably had in mind members of the Jewish leadership whom he wanted to humble and bring under submission to Jesus. Uh, So in his gospel, he's got a positive example of that. Uh, You might know this um, about Nicodemus, who seeks out Jesus at the beginning of the gospel. Later on, what we're going to see is that Nicodemus will publicly align himself with Jesus, uh, this is in chapter 19, by participating generously in Jesus' burial. Okay, so that's a positive example of someone from the Jewish establishment who sought out Jesus, was hesitant about it, but eventually came round and aligned himself with him. But against that positive example, we've got Annas and Caiaphas. 
standing as the negative counterpart to that example, deeply unattractive portraits of stubbornly arrogant and self-serving men. But as I was uh, suggesting earlier, this attitude that's within them goes much wider than these two characters. I can think of many people that I know have a very, very similar attitude to these two. Come on, they say to Jesus. Impress me. But I suspect too that this attitude is lurking in all of us. We too put Jesus on trial without having listened to him. We too effectively slap him in the face when he fails to dance to our tune to conform the way we want him to. We too are overly comfortable with the status quo. Just think about your own circumstances for a moment. I don't know the the details, but but you do. Uh, Just think about them for a moment. And as you think about that, you may be thinking, well, of course, life may not be satisfactory in many respects. Nevertheless, I suspect the way we're often thinking is that we we are striving for things in our lives in the world to be kind of okay, relatively speaking. Materially, we want to be at a certain level, we want to be more or less happy about, uh, say, having friends or family around, not, not ashamed of our circumstances anyway. Uh, within our marriages, we, we want to kind of bargain for a, a reasonable outcome, a, a fair compromise on how things are done. And so we bargain for that over the years, grumbling about any perceived unfairness along the way. We want a group of friends, perhaps, who are unthreatening and unchallenging. And many of us, in these areas, we'll have found a sort of relatively comfortable niche for ourselves in the messy order of things. That that is how the world works, isn't it? And and that's how we fit into it. And we may well be wanting to protect that in the face of Jesus. Jesus, we suspect, might threaten our hard-earned position. Certainly, if Jesus was given full reign over our lives he would certainly threaten it. And for myself, it frightens me to see that that attitude holding me back, holding me back from from submitting to Jesus as I should. And it concerns me that uh, this is holding others back too, such that they have a tendency to stand at a distance, unable to let go of what they have fought for in their lives. Well, let all of us see again the ugly reflection of that part of ourselves in this portrait in John chapter 18. Look again at the pompous, self-important corruption of Anas and his entourage. People with such self-confidence that they would dare slap the Son of God in the face. Look at them again and let us be humbled. So okay, then let's now suppose that we want nothing to do with the likes of Annas and Caiaphas. Should we then follow Peter instead? Now, he's the other character here, isn't he? Should we follow him, in, him instead? Well, here again, I think some, we need some caution is necessary, and there are still many ways in which our ego can still play tricks on us. And what I want to see as we read this second strand of the story is see those tricks of our ego exposed by Peter's story. Now, I've called Peter one of Jesus' helpless people. 
But I do want to make it clear again as we read this story together, this is not just a question of watching someone in spiritual freefall from a distance. It is very tempting to read this account like that, isn't it? I especially want us to see tonight how it should be acting upon us. What John is going to do is align us with people as a kind of representative disciple so that we go through what he went through. The bravado at the beginning, then the weakness, and then the failure. It's not going to be an easy journey, but it's a necessary journey if our self-dependence is to be squeezed out of us once and for all. What we're just about to experience is the self-confident disciple cut down to size in five deeply humbling steps. Uh, The first step you can see is in verses 15 and 16. Simon Peter and another disciple are following Jesus. Uh, The other disciple is very likely, I think, to to be John himself. Uh, That's because so far in the Gospel, John's given the the disciples names, uh, apart from one time when he was clearly talking about himself. So I suspect this is John himself. Uh, That means he's giving eyewitness details in this account. Anyway, this other disciple whoever he is, knows the high priest and gets in without a problem, while Peter is shut outside. That's almost a slightly comic scene, isn't it? The one who said he would follow Jesus forever, even to death, is shut outside. So why are we told this little detail? Well, surely the words of Jesus from chapter 13 we looked at earlier should immediately come to mind at this point. Where I am going, you cannot follow And this is a slightly comic illustration of that very idea. But those words don't yet seem to come to Peter's mind, and so begins his second stage of his humbling. Now, I want you to start to see the deliberate contrast John is making between Jesus and Peter in these verses. Jesus has been bound and taken for questioning by none other than the high priest emeritus. Well, here Peter is questioned but by the girl at the door. Jesus, John tells us later, tells the truth. That is the thing that characterizes his witness under questioning. He tells the truth. Peter, on the other hand, tells a whopper of a lie. You're not one of his disciples, are you? Asks the girl at the door. And then, on his own, Peter's boldness evaporates. Because it's always the hardest moment, isn't it, when we're on our own. On our own with school friends, perhaps. On our own at work. On our own with people we've just met. It's the least comfortable place to be. Are you one of them? People will ask us. I am not, says Peter. You might remember last week when the party of soldiers and officials asked for Jesus of Nazareth. And he said very boldly, I am. That again is a deliberate contrast that John is drawing. But still Peter doesn't realise what he's doing. All he realises is that it's a cold night. So he goes to warm himself with the servants and officials by a charcoal fire. And I guess, you know, we can all understand how nice that can be. We did a lot of camping when we were out in Australia. One of the best parts was being able to make a real fire and sit around it at night. And it would be very cold, but there would be the warmth of the fire. But this particular scene is very striking 
image, is it not? A, a third stage of humiliation. Remember that the officials here are the temple guards. Uh, we've met them before in the party who came to arrest Jesus and then, and then bound him. John is shortly going to describe one of them slapping Jesus on the face. And here Peter is standing, standing with them, warming his hands. So much of his bold promises to protect Jesus. The only thing he's protecting here is his temperature. Now it's at this point that the scene shifts. It shifts from warm, cozy Peter standing in company uh, to Jesus, bound, alone, being struck, being dragged away. Jesus, as we've already seen, has been absolutely steadfast and will remain so all the way to his death. But then at the end of that scene, we shift back again, verse 25, to Peter again, warming himself. John is emphasizing it, isn't he? Warming himself, as yet unconscious of what's going on. The fourth stage of his humbling comes as the questioning continues. You're not one of his disciples, are you? Someone else asks it this time. I'm not, he says. He's already said this, of course, so it may make him a little nervous to have to say it again, as if the message hasn't got through. Not as nervous as, he, as when he gets questioned by a relative of Malchus, the man whom he recently took a swipe at with his sword, uh, probably hoping to take his head off, but thankfully for Malchus, only managing an ear. You can imagine as this question came this time, we can imagine Peter was now genuinely fearful for his life and his denial this time probably had a bit of a shake to it. And at that moment, a cock began to crow. Peter has finally been rumbled by a rooster. I will lay down my life for you. That's what Peter had said. Jesus had answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth. Before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. Jesus is one man, one man, dying alone for the lives of his people, his helpless people. Jesus is dying for people who are helpless and have been humbled to know it. This is it. This is the conclusion. The eternal life that we have from God is by Christ alone, by grace alone, by faith alone. And this then finally is the second way that this sermon is like a Bond film. Because in the Bible story, the Bible's main story, the hero really does save the world completely on his own. But it's such a hard thing to accept, isn't it? Perhaps in some ways it's the hardest thing for anyone coming to Jesus to accept. We might even say, so far as our egos are concerned, it's personally devastating to have to accept this. You see, we think we've done, uh, we've done a good thing. We've done a good thing in, in not being like Caiaphas or, or Annas. Uh, and we can see in part that Jesus is doing something amazing. He's doing something great in the world. And we do want to be a part of it. If we're honest, we feel, we feel good about ourselves for recognising that. Perhaps we think that God should also feel good about us for recognising that. 
But the thing we shy away from is the suggestion that we come to Jesus completely helpless. The suggestion that we have nothing to bring to the table. You see, secretly, and I'm thinking of myself here as much as anyone, secretly we do want this to be about Jesus and me making this happen. Not Jesus alone. And this desire for recognition, I think it manifests itself in all sorts of unpleasant symptoms. I wonder why this is why we tend to get grumpy when we think we're being overlooked or unrecognised or we may not thank for things that we do in service within the church family. I wonder if at the heart this is why sometimes we get so frustrated, frustrated when we, we feel we're not being heard, that our voice is not being recognised, named. I wonder if this, uh, this tendency lies behind, behind some of us thinking, well, you know, I've made a mark in other areas of my life. I want to make a mark in the church now. I want to be there somewhere in the credits alongside Jesus. But look again at what Peter had to learn. He was nowhere. He was nothing. He was helpless. It's a personally devastating thing to have to accept. But it's a good thing. In fact, if we really do want to serve well in the church family, it's here, it's this, is where we need to begin. Where am I? I am going, Jesus has said. You cannot follow now. But then he added, but you will follow later. In other words, this kind of humility, letting Jesus go first, actually forms the foundation of all genuine service in the name of Christ as we follow sacrificially in Jesus' footsteps, as Peter himself discovered later. So it's a good thing. And as we finish, I do want to ask you, have you had your Peter moment? Have you had your Peter moment? Or are you still hanging on to the hope that this might somehow be some sort of joint venture between you and Jesus? If so, then there's no better time than right now to let yourself be crushed as Peter was. It is, as I've said, a personally devastating thing to have to accept. But it's a good thing. And I might ask in addition, are you having that moment every day of your Christian lives? Are you having your Peter moments every day of your life? Because there is no day when we don't need to be reminded of our helplessness before him, our incapacity, our empty hands. Let's pray together.